mean, we have really got to look at our budget for this next month, especially with the holidays coming up. We went way over. Cheryl, how do you even spend $50 at Chick-fil-A? We've got Christmas coming. We've got to get this thing under control. No more spending, okay? No more spending. Honey, what you doing? Nothing. Just looking. What you looking at? Pictures. Oh. Yes. I'll take one. I'll take two. Oh, yeah. That is perfect for the kids. Huh. Didn't even know I needed that one. Oh, yeah. Let's get that in blue. Doorbell. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. here for you and this one says Michael Gettings here you go here's your packages and it again I guess I'm so glad I have my parents passwords this is gonna be a great Christmas gift hey it's me Stephen from Northside Delivery guess what here's the car that you purchased this is right. It's your car. Merry Christmas to you. See ya. Uh -oh. Mom, Dad, I may or may not have bought a car. <laughs> well, if you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author. Salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament toward the end of the Bible. It is one of Paul's epistles, letters that he wrote to his son in the ministry, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. A survey that was taken just over a month ago by CNBC found that 74%, 74% of working Americans are stressed out over money, their personal finances. The survey went on to say that 61% of families are living paycheck to paycheck. 61%. Now, I think you can imagine with me that it doesn't take a lot to know that that, that kind of financial stress is going to put stress on a family. According to a study done by SunTrust, finances are the number one cause of stress in families today. And another study by the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysis makes money issues the third leading cause of divorce today. It's obvious for many people that finances are a major source of stress. All you have to do is go to the grocery store and, and you can see how the, the prices have skyrocketed. But it's not just food today, it's, it's clothes, it's cars, it's homes, it's pretty much everything that we have to buy. The, the price has gone through the roof. They say that the inflation rate today 
is at 3.7%. And that's compared to 8.2% a year ago. Now, I'm not an economist, but, but I got to tell you, when I go to the store, it looks like our inflation rate should be a little bit higher than it is because when I go, it looks like everything costs more than it cost a year ago. And for those who want to buy a house, the interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage was 2.65% in January of 2021. Today, it's around 8%. Now, to put that in perspective, if you wanted to borrow $200,000 to buy a home, the difference in your payment from 2.65% to 8% would be around $670 a month. That's how much of a difference your payment would be. That's roughly a payment of $806 to $1,476, almost twice as much. And people who are at my age or around my age are probably a little bit concerned about retirement. I mean, there for a couple of years, it seemed that my retirement was going like this, and I was pretty happy with what my retirement looked like. And then all of a sudden, my retirement went like this. And now it's kind of doing this. So, so I, I understand when, when people say that they're frustrated, they're stressed out, they're concerned about their finances. I think most people are today. So the question we have to ask is, does God give us a word? Does God have something to say to us about our finances? And the good news is he does. There are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that speak about finances. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus gave speak to how we handle our money, how we handle our possessions. Think about that. If God spoke so much about money and possessions and we believe that God's word is true, then shouldn't we want to know what God's word has to say on the subject of our money, on our finances. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. And these messages are going to be very practical. We've entitled this three-part series, Money Management Made Simple. And the first principle I want us to learn, the one today, is simply this. We have to live within our means. We can't spend more than we make. Let me say that again. We've got to live within our means. We can't spend more than we make. And if your Bible is open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to begin reading midway through verse 2. Listen to God's word. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teachings by, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Now, before we continue to read, I want you to underline or circle that phrase to them. A show of godliness is just a means to become wealthy. 
The NIV translates that verse who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. The today's English version translates it this way. They think that religion is a way to get rich. And let's pick back up with verse 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Now, I want you to go ahead and underline or circle or highlight two words, the word godliness and the word contentment. So in your Bible, circle those words, godliness and contentment. Now let's continue reading. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave the world. I've not seen any U-Hauls following hearses lately, have you? You can't take it with you. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now, I want you to underline verse 9 in your Bible. It's a long verse, but I, I think it's important for you to underline it. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish, harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. That's a strong word, isn't it? Ruin, destruction. Now, move down with me to verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment tell them to use their money to do good they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others by doing this they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life now in verses 17 and 18 I want you to underline or circle three words the word trust some translations have that word trust translated hope. The Greek word is ellipsis. It's different than faith, but it's a hopeful trust. So underline or um, circle that word, the word enjoyment and the word generous. Now I want to give you four observations from this passage as we begin this morning. The first one is a misconception. And the misconception is this, that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying in verse 5. He says there are some who think that godliness is a means to financial wealth, to financial gain. Today there is an entire stream of Christianity that teaches that. Some call it the prosperity gospel. Others call it the health and wealth movement. Some people call it the word of faith movement. But this movement has the idea that God is here to serve us to give us whatever we want, kind of like some genie in a bottle. They have this idea that financial blessings are the result of properly understanding, then properly applying God's Word. Now, this group would never see it this way, but they are no different than the people that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6, these people that saw godliness as a means to financial gain. And the problem is, Paul said that these people have corrupt minds. Another translation of that could be, they are rotten to the core. And then he said, they have been robbed of the truth. 
Here's the problem. This teaching has turned the truth of God's word upside down. You see, God isn't here to serve us. We are here to serve God. And godliness isn't a means to an end. Godliness is an end in itself. The fact is, many of the believers in the New Testament were slaves. They had no personal rights. They had no personal possessions. And there were others who lost everything because of their faith in Jesus. Now, the truth is, God does bless us when we're obedient. But those blessings come in a variety of ways, and they aren't the reason for our obedience. They are the byproduct of our obedience. So a misconception, godliness is a means to financial gain. That's wrong. Here's the second thing you need to understand, and it's a truth. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now notice those two words, godliness and contentment. Now godliness comes from a relationship with God, knowing him, putting him first in our life. And the Bible tells us that contentment is a byproduct of godliness. It comes from knowing that God loves us, he's going to watch over us, he's going to meet our needs. And it causes us to be satisfied where we are with what we have. And then Paul defines what we should be content with. He said we should be content if we have food and shelter. In other words, if we have the basic needs of life, we should be content. If I have a place to live, if I have clothes to wear, if I have food to eat, I should be content. But somewhere, the American church, we as Christians today have lost that truth. We're no longer content with having our needs met. We have this big list of wants that we feel is necessary or we simply can't be content with what we have. And that leads me to the third thing we see here. And that is a warning. Misplaced priorities or misplaced desires will lead to our destruction. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Don't miss what Paul said. He said, people who want to get rich. That's their goal. That's their aim. That's their desire in life. Now, I want you to notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say people who get rich. He didn't say people who are rich. But what he said is people who are driven by this desire to get rich, to make more, to have more. You see, you need to understand that that's nothing more than greed, materialism, the love of money. And Paul says here in this chapter that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now let me be clear. This passage never says that money is evil. Money is passive. Money is morally neutral but when it gets into our hands something happens it comes alive and depending on how we use the money that is in our hands it can either unleash a world of hurt or a world of help into our lives our family and to our world David McConaughey wrote a book in 1918 the title was money the acid test 
And I believe that that book is perhaps more relevant today than it was even in 1918. I want you to listen to one thing he said. He said, money molds people. Depending on how it is handled, it proves a blessing or a curse. To its possessor, either the person becomes master of the money or the money becomes master of the person. And that's the problem. All too often, we become mastered by our money and the desire to have money. And the Apostle Paul says that's very dangerous. It becomes a temptation. Then it becomes a trap. And all of a sudden, it, we find ourselves pulled by foolish and harmful desires that can lead to our ruin and even our destruction. You see, the desire for riches can cause us to do things we never thought we would do and act in ways that we never thought we would act. Paul even says that some have wandered from the faith because of their desire for money. I read this week that, that someone said the most dangerous love affair any man or woman could ever experience is the love affair with money. And I, I tend to agree with that. The love of money can lead us down a path that can destroy our lives. And listen, it can rob us of all eternity. When we're driven by a desire for money, that can destroy our lives. But finally, notice an application. And that is we need to trust God, enjoy his provisions, and be generous with what we have. Paul tells us that in verses 17 and 19. First, he tells us to trust God, not riches. Our bank accounts can be empty. Our savings accounts and our retirements can disappear. You see, it's not the amount of money that you have in your bank account or hidden somewhere that provides security. Security comes from God. And the Bible says that God provides, listen to this, everything we need to enjoy life. Don't miss that. If our relationship with God is right, then God tells us that he gives us everything we need to enjoy life. And so if you're not enjoying life, it's either that you don't recognize where joy comes from or you're not where you need to be with God in the first place. And then notice what he says. He said we should use both our time and our treasures to help others. And when we do, we're storing up treasures for all eternity. See, the Apostle Paul was saying it's only when we live a life of radical generosity in what we do and how we give what we have that we begin to live the way God wants us to live. Now here's the problem, and I want you to lean in and listen to me. You see, we have a tendency to do things our way, our selfish ways, our sinful ways, and yet we expect God to bless that. And understand God's not. If we want God's blessings, we have to do it his way. And we must understand his blessings are not necessarily financial blessings. I would say more often than not, they're not financial blessings. So, this is all about living within our means. How can we live within our means? I want to give you two keys, two practical action points that I think will help you. Here's the first one. You've got to manage 
your money wisely. You've got to manage your money wisely. That means you don't spend what you don't have. I want you to hear something. Financial freedom is not dependent upon what you make, but rather how you spend what you make. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just can't live on what I make? I want you to know that that's not true. And the reality is you've been proven wrong time and time again. Because here in America, there are probably people that, that are living on what you are making, that are living okay, and the reason is because they have learned how to manage that money. It's not what you make. Is how you use what you make. That's why we have to come up with a plan. Solomon, who was, by many people's accounts, the, the richest man who has ever lived, said this. In Proverbs 21, he said, plan carefully and you'll have plenty. If you act too quickly, you will never have enough. Later on, he said this. He said, know the state of your flocks. Put your heart into caring for your herds, for riches don't last Forever. Now, in Solomon's day, the people were herdsmen. They were, they were farmers. And so, so your wealth wasn't determined by the amount of money that you had in a bank. Your, your wealth was determined by the amount of land that you had, the crops that you had, and the amount of herds that you had, your cattle, your sheep, your, your various animals. And what Solomon is saying there is you've got to keep a good accounting of what you have. Have you ever heard someone say, I don't know where my money goes? Have you ever said that? I just don't know where my money goes. Well, if you don't know where your money goes, it's your fault. And, and that's not being hard. That's just being realistic. If you don't know where your money goes, it's because you haven't kept an account of that. There are two things that everyone needs to know when it comes to their money. First of all, you need to know what you make. You need to know what you make. You need to be able to break that down annually, monthly, and weekly. You've got to know what you make. What's that baseline that you've got to live on? And then you've got to know what you spend. And when you're looking at what you spend, you've got to include everything. Your mortgage or your rent, your utilities, your insurance, your food, your gas, your taxes, your clothes, your household repairs, your cleaning supplies, your medical expenses, your entertainment, your vacations, your gift, if you spend it, write it down. You see, it's the things that you don't write down that will cripple you. And so when you're coming up with your budget, you write down every single thing you spend. Once you know what you make and you know what you spend, you take what you spend and subtract it from what you make. If the number is positive, you're okay. If your number is negative, you're not okay. And you've only got two choices. You either got to figure out a way to make more money or you've got to figure out a way to spend less money. Those are your only two choices because you can't spend more than you make. You've got to develop a budget, a spending plan. Because a budget is you telling your money where you want it to go rather than coming at the end of the month, the end of the year, and going, where in the world did my money go? Now, I want to warn you against something. And that's impulse buying. 
Nine out of ten Americans are impulse buyers. You know what that means? We see a pair of shoes. We see a gun. We see a tool. We see a dress. And we buy it. I'm an impulse buyer. Anybody else impulse buyers? The rest of your liars. <laughs> I'm an impulse buyer. I come from a family of impulse buyers. And the way I'm an impulse buyer is that I can be on Amazon like our actors were. And I can find something and go, ooh, I need that. I haven't needed it in the past. I've lived without it. But once I see it, I need it. I go to the store, and there's a sale. And I have a hard time passing up the sale. Now, I want you to hear me. A sale for me isn't 10% off. It's not 20% off. It's not 30% off. It's not 40% off. For me, a sale is 50% off or more. And if I see 50% off, I'm going to the rack. I'm looking. I'm going, ooh, I like that. I mean, they're practically giving away, right? And, and I'm drawn to that. And our impulse buying can destroy our budget. So you need to stay away from impulse buying. Now, if you have lots of discretionary money and you don't care where it goes, then be an impulse buyer. That's okay. But if you are like the majority of Americans and 61% and you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're an impulse buyer, you're going in the hole. So you need to stop it. Second thing I would say to you is this. Be content with what you have. Resist the desire to acquire. Someone once asked Howard Hughes, and at this time he was the richest man in the world. They asked him, how much money does a person need to be happy? You know what he said, the richest man in the world? He said, always a little bit more. And isn't that true? I mean, how many of us have been guilty of saying, if I only made and we fill in the blank, I would be happy. I, I, would, be, I would be okay. The only problem is that number that we fill in the blank with, it changes over time it always seems to go up no matter what it is the number is always going to go up and be more I think the reason is is because we think money and having more of it is what's going to make us happy so we sacrifice our family our health we even sacrifice our soul in the search for money because we have bought into this myth that if we have more money then we're going to be happier but I've discovered that our yearnings are going to always exceed our earnings. What we want is going to always exceed what we have. Someone once said it this way, if your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Let me say it again, if your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Our desire to acquire keeps growing no matter what we make, no matter how much we have. And this isn't a new thing. Listen to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5. He said, those who love money will never have enough. In chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, he said, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. And then the author of Hebrews said it this way, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. 
Be content. Be satisfied. You know the number one reason that most of us aren't content, we're discontent? Because we compare ourselves and what we have with someone else and what they have. I'm satisfied with the house I live in until I visit someone else's house. And then I want another house. I'm satisfied with the gun I have until I shoot someone else's gun and then I want that gun. I'm satisfied with the boat until I get on their boat and I discover that I need that boat. And whatever it may be, we're satisfied, we're content until we compare ourselves with someone else. And all of a sudden, because of our discontent, we end up getting in debt up to our eyeballs, buying things we can't afford on interest rates that we can't afford. Have you ever heard that slogan, no credit, no problem? The problem is that's a lie. It is a problem. I want to give you some figures. And these figures are staggering. These are 2023 figures. You know which year we're living in, right? 2023. These are these are up-to-date figures. American consumers owe $16.84 trillion. American consumers are in debt $16.84 trillion. American consumers owe $1.079 trillion in credit card debt. $1.079. American consumers owe $1.77 trillion in student loan debt. And let me tell you what the Bible says in Proverbs 22. Just as the rich rule over the poor, so the borrower is the slave to the lender. And that's just a fact. You can't argue with that. You see, when you borrow money, you are enslaved to the lender until you repay it back. That's just the reality of life. And some people say because of that, all debt is wrong. And I would disagree with that. I would say that there is acceptable debt, there is questionable debt, and then there is bad debt. I would say acceptable debt would be in the category of a home mortgage. If you buy a house at a good price that you can afford the payment, then that's a good debt to have because your house typically is an appreciating value. And so that's a good debt. Questionable debt is questionable because of a number of variables. For instance, a car debt can be good or bad. If you buy a used car that is a dependable car with a good running motor at a low price where you're not going to pay for it over three years and you feel certain it's going to last you for three years, that's an okay debt if you need that car to get back and forth to work. But I want you to hear me. If you see that new hot rod or that new truck and you just got to have it. I know trucks cost, what, $50,000 today, $60,000, $60,000 and up. And you go $60,000 for a truck, I can afford it. I'm going to pay for that thing for 10 years. And can I tell you, you can do that today, but that's unwise. And the reason is, is because before you get that thing paid off, it's not going to be worth what you owe on it. That's just the reality of things. There are people who have bought cars at five, six, seven, eight years and more who are paying for a car 
who's, who, who, which is now in a junkyard somewhere. And that's foolish. But then there's bad debt. And bad debt is credit card debt. You buy things on credit to purchase things you can't afford with money at a super high interest rate. Do you know what the credit card interest rate is today? It's over 20%. And so if you're using a credit card and you're not paying off that credit card every month, you're paying over 20% interest. Now hear me. If you're disciplined and you use a credit card and every month you pay off that credit card, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm here to tell you that if you're using your credit card to purchase things and you're carrying debt on that credit card, you need to cut up that card right now. You say, I can't. I would say, oh, yes, you can. Just get your pair of scissors. Cut it up and pay it off. Because if you don't, it's going to destroy you and it's going to destroy your family. I mean, do you really need to get your nails done two times a month? Ladies, I'm here to tell you, no man married a woman because of her nails. Men, did any of you marry your wife because she had pretty painted nails? Any of you? Hey, ladies, look, not a single man. Not a single man. You don't need to buy a latte two times a week. You don't need to play golf once a month. Now hear me, there's nothing wrong with getting your nails done. There's nothing wrong with getting lattes. There's nothing wrong with playing golf if you can afford it. But if you are buying those things on a credit card and you're paying for those things month by month by month, then something is wrong. Let me give you a saying my wife and I heard years ago, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. I've got clothes in my closet that are 15 years old that I still wear. Now I've got other things that used to be in my closet that are not that old that I've taken to Goodwill. I don't keep everything that long, but I try to wear things out or I get tired of it and if I can afford it I replace it and, and that's okay if you can afford it use it up wear it out make it do or do without because it's a whole lot easier to get into debt than get out of debt and let me close with two thoughts first of all find your joy in Christ not in things I want you to remember what Paul said. He said, Christ provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I don't believe that that's saying that Christ is going to get you a boat if you enjoy fishing. Or he's going to get you a new gun if you enjoy hunting. Or whatever it may be. I think what this is saying is that when we have Christ, we can enjoy life whatever we have or we don't have. Because we discover that our enjoyment is in Christ not in things. So find your joy in Christ, not in things. Second thing I would say to you is invest in eternity. Paul tells us to live in such a way that we are building a home which will be waiting for us in eternity because when you consider the amount of time that we are in the here and now versus the amount of time that we are going to be in the hereafter, the hereafter is much, 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 much longer than the here and now. 
And so let's quit spending so much money on the here and now. Let's make sure that we're investing our money in the hereafter. And I can tell you if we do that, developing a budget, living within our means, practicing contentment, everything's going to be okay. So let me ask you, do you have joy? Joy is not dependent upon what you have, it's dependent upon who you have, and that's Jesus. Do you have joy? If you're here and you've been searching for joy and what money can bring, you're never going to get it. I would challenge you today to humble yourself before Jesus, repent of your sins, trust Jesus to be your Savior, give your life to him. He'll give you joy. And begin investing in eternal things, things that will outlast your physical body, things that will be waiting for you when you stand before Jesus. And if you do, I just really believe with all my heart that our finances will be okay because our priorities are okay. Father God, this is your time. And I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name to just use this time to speak to our hearts. Lord Jesus, I don't know where every person in this room is financially. I know we're in different places. We're at different stages of our life, different seasons. Father, I pray that the truth of your word, and I believe with all my heart, everything I said is your truth. I pray, Father, the truth of your word will permeate our hearts and our minds and we'll apply it to our lives and it will help us live joyful, abundant lives. Father, I pray that anyone here who does not know you, who has not discovered the joy that only you can bring, will today humble themselves and give their heart and life to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to stand with me.